listeners, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the Arcananth podcast. This is the podcast all about the study of people, uh, both living today and in the past. I am the host of the show, Dr. Michael Rivera, and I have a superb guest on the podcast today, Jordan Abel. Jordan, are you there? Hi, Michael. Yes, thanks for having me. Hi, Jordan. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Mm -hmm. um, talking to you from Tucson, Arizona. Oh, cool. Yeah. I've never been there before. Yeah. Um, I've actually, I did my undergraduate work out here uh, at the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, it's really nice, uh, enjoy, very enjoyable weather. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, I love, I love cacti. I have to say probably mm -hmm. my favorite type of plant. So uh, for me, it's a very enjoyable environment to be in. Yeah, that's really cool. I would love to visit Arizona one day. Uh, I just never got the chance yet. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a place to try to get to um, in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from reading online, I know that you do some really interesting and important research, specifically like about the environments that animals and people were living in, in the deep, deep past. So uh, let me give you the stage. Like, why don't you tell us more about what it is that you do and sort of how far back we're talking about here in terms of the ancient past? Yeah. So by training, I am a geochemist, an isotope geochemist, and I study uh, past climates um, using uh, geochemical tools. Mm -hmm. But one foray, which deals with the archaeology work that I've done, uh, was to use geochemical tools to try to understand uh, past um, site usage um, and changes in people's behaviors uh, during the Neolithic. So the work that I've done uh, in geoarchaeology uh, spans about from nine to 10,000 years ago. So this is during the Neolithic time period. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking at this, this what's known or has previously been known as the Neolithic revolution, uh, this change from a more uh, forager, hunter-gatherer society uh, to where uh, the manipulation of um, plants and animals um, and also during this time is the de development of a sedentary lifestyle, um, moving from more nomadic lifestyle, uh, that obviously had been practiced for millions of years mm -hmm. prior to this. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. How, how long have you been interested in, you know, paleoclimate, geology, um, archeology? span How long are you in the middle of your PhD right now? Uh, just over halfway through. Uh, my fourth year of my PhD, so hopefully another year and a half to go. Mm -hmm. Initially, I was an engineering major as an undergraduate, uh, but after some critical thinking um, mm -hmm. and trying to look inward, I decided that I'd always been fascinated by the earth mm -hmm. um, and as well as history. And so during my undergraduate, I switched into the geology program at the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And when I had done that, I realized that there were so many uh, different branches in the field of earth science um, that I did a bunch of different stuff ranging from looking at uh, modern climate simulations um, to try to understand how uh, what effect global warming is having on the planet mm -hmm. all the way back to um, looking at how places in Asia became dry so a lot of the deserts in Asia um, originally became arid Mm. what impact that had on dust, which is actually my specialty is looking at atmospheric dust. I know that sounds somewhat odd and boring, but <laughs> no. that, dust can actually have a pretty big impact on the climate system. Mm -hmm. The third project that I'd worked on during an undergrad was this uh, work in archeology span where um, there was a famous geochemist named Jay Quaid, 
who had said that he had a project for me and he had been known for many different things. Um, most of them dealing with work in Tibet, um, and understanding mountain buildings, mountain building in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, you know, this is going to be great. I'm going to go look at past climate in the Himalayas and how mountains are built. When I got there, he said, you know, we're going to look at 10,000 year old garbage. And mm-hmm. I was a little taken aback. Um, unsure. I didn't know much about archeology span at that point. I had actually not even taken a class on it, but I had always enjoyed history. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of where it all blossomed. Um, and while that, I thought that was initially going to be a, just an undergraduate project, it's actually really turned into something that I want to continue doing all the way through my academic career mm-hmm. as long as that lasts. Yeah. It's kind of like the first thing that you learn, um, for anybody who sort of, uh, delves into archeology, span like you're basically looking through, uh, heaps of rubbish <laughs> or whatever is left over from, uh, people's societies in the past. Yeah. Um, that's actually where, uh, I think we succeeded is bringing even more attention to this idea of, you know, how important that middens, these, these, you know, refuse piles, um, can really be from a chemical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, and that was something I, that drew me in when, you know, after I got over the initial shock of, you know, seeing myself as a, as a garbage chemist is, um, really that how much you could really learn about uh, people just from what they leave behind mm-hmm. as garbage. Um, you know, taking that idea of a, you know, one person's trash is another's treasure. In this case, it's a, I think a treasure trove of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, it, yeah, it was definitely, um, you know, a very interesting project. And like I said, even though I might focus with my PhD work and, and beyond on, on earth science and past uh, climate of the earth. This is definitely something that, you know, I, the archaeology work is something I definitely want to continue uh, alongside mm-hmm. it. At the start of your PhD work, I'm curious to know, how did you understand what your role could be and what information you could find that could complement the previous knowledge that we already knew about uh, a time period such as the Neolithic? Right. So when I had started my PhD, my work, like I said, was focusing on my thesis work focuses on past climate of about 3 million years ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my advisor being incredibly supportive, um, allowed me to continue working with Jay and others, including Mary Steiner at the university of Arizona, who's a zooarchaeologist, Susan Menser, uh, who's at the university of Tübingen, who is a micromorphologist and geoarchaeologist, as well as the heads of the uh, archaeological site of Ashiklahoyuk in Turkey, where we performed our work, that that would be Mirabhan Ashbasharan, uh, Gunesh Duru, and then a PhD student there, or I should say now, Dr. Mm -hmm. uh, Melis Ujduram. Those are our colleagues. So they uh, initially, the the way that we got onto this project was that Mary Steiner had been collaborating and working at Ashikla since the site had reopened in 2010. Mm -hmm. And she had brought Jay Quaid along to do a bunch of the radiocarbon dating there. And while he was doing that, he saw these big midden piles. And between him and Susan Menser, they had decided to look at the chemistry of the site and these midden deposits and around some of these dung layers that were uh, visible. Mm -hmm. And when they had done that, they had basically come across that these really high signatures of salts 
which were very unusual for a site like this. You really only find these levels and these, the mineralogy present there in the world's driest deserts like the Atacama. Mm -hmm. And so taking that, um, this is kind of where I came into the story. Jay and Susan had thought about this a little bit and we wanted to try to understand better the, you know, what can the chemistry of this site tell us and what do these unusual signatures of these salts uh, mean in terms, you know, can we understand something about this site uh, from understanding these chemical signatures? Mm -hmm. And so this is actually where, you know, my, my role started and where we kind of got the idea of what, you know, what can we add to this site as geochemists? Um, you know, what can we add in terms of understanding how these people lived, what was going on here 10,000 years ago. And Ashiklahoyuk itself is really important because it's one of the few sites in central Anatolia that spans this, uh, you know, transition from um, more nomadic hunter-gatherer foraging lifestyle to a sedentary lifestyle with, you know, early plant and animal management. Mm -hmm. The samples that you're uh, you're taking from the site, how come there is layers of um, dung in these middens? Like, well, how come it's so, let's say, dung rich, I guess? <laughs> why, why is that? Yeah, so these people initially, um, as, as the site was uh, first started, uh, it's thought that, you know, they were still continuing this more nomadic lifestyle. This was more semi-permanent um, and then over time, it became a permanent settlement. Mm -hmm. And spanning these thousand years, these people would just toss their waste um, right outside, uh, you know, between buildings. Uh, sometimes if a building became abandoned, they would toss the refuse right in the building mm -hmm. and it would just start to layer up. And over time, as they would build, they weren't necessarily always building just outward. They would build on top. Mm -hmm. And so you would get compaction of these layers through time as well over the thousand years of occupation. And so you have these distinct midden layers that are sporadic across the, the mound itself, um, you know, on the periphery, sometimes within buildings that have been abandoned. So you get these nice layered um, middens and these, these refuse piles that, you know, you can visibly see teeth sticking out of mm -hmm. as you're excavating. You can see obsidian flakes, um, a bunch of burned plant matter. Uh, and the like. So yeah, that's actually how we think that these developed was that they were just tossing their garbage out mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's being compacted through time. And so you get these nice layered deposits. Um, sometimes they throw it right on top of, you know, where they may have been, uh, stabling of these animals or corralling, mm -hmm. um, you know, between buildings. And then all of a sudden that became a, uh, a, a refuse area. Yeah. Um, as well. Are these mounds, um, like, <laughs> are they like knee height? Are they like, um, all I'm picturing right now, like in Jurassic Park, when Laura Dern finds the Triceratops dung, <laughs> that's what I'm imagining right now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the, when I say mound, I'm actually speaking of the entire site itself. Um, so what you can imagine is it's actually about, it sits about 16 meters, um, in height above the local floodplain. Mm -hmm. So to try to set the stage here, um, this site of a it sits on uh, what's it's called the Melendez river or Melendez Creek. Um, so it's right up, butted up next to a, a river, a pretty small one. And there's the natural floodplain sediments. And then there's this mound that's about 15, 16 meters above this, you know, stretching, you know, 15 to 16 meters above. And all you can imagine is if you look at this from 
say the side that's being excavated, one of the sides is just these interwoven sections of architecture and then a midden pile architecture with midden in it, um, mm-hmm. you know, refuse spanning off the sides, uh, to give it terms of, in terms of scale, um, it, you know, laterally we're looking at around 57 to 60,000 square meters. Wow. So it's a huge place. Yeah. Um, uh, that's based on a, you know, a rough attempt at a reconstruction since some of it has been eroded away by, uh, the river itself over time since its occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you could think, I mean, it's a huge mound, um, and it's got tons of architecture, these buildings. Um, there's a really cool, uh, which I'm not an expert in, but there's a really cool transition from these semi subterranean round buildings initially to then they start making above ground, uh, quadrangular and rectangular buildings. Um, that are really tight knit as you get into the later levels um, where everything becomes architecture and the middens mm-hmm. might've been moved far out to the sides. Um, so it's in a really expansive site. That's just a bunch, you know, an amalgamation of, of mm-hmm. middens and architecture. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that, um, that it was surprising that there was so, so much uh, salt content in these uh, samples that you looked at from the mound. Um, why is it unexpected? When what we, you know, we would think of, we don't really, think of salts necessarily um, when we think of remnants uh, at archaeological sites. Uh, a lot of the work that's been done uh, in the last you know, 20, 30 years um, in, in terms of geochemistry or geoarchaeology has been measuring um, elemental concentrations or, or isotopes mm-hmm. of you know, bulk sediments themselves. Um, but what we were finding is that these salts were actually, you know, they're quite soluble, right? If you put these sediments in water, um, they would dissolve right away. Um, so the idea being that these uh, in a, in a wetter region, you know, relatively wetter, about 400 millimeters per year, uh, in this area in Turkey, you know, it's dry, but it's not, you know, there is precipitation. Um, you would think that a lot of these salts would get, you know, leached out. Mm. Um, and we just don't think about, uh, and, necessarily, you know, before this, we didn't think of these soluble salts as being, you know, important or even considered, right? You would think that if you just measured these salts, it would look like the background natural floodplain um, sediment from the river itself. Mm-hmm. And so um, these values look like, you know, uh, levels that you would are above levels you would get in a hyper arid desert where everything, you know, water's evaporating, leaving behind these mm-hmm. um, really concentrated salts. Are there uh, specific salts that we're talking about here? And, um, you know, during life, like around uh, that time period, like around, you know, 6,500 or, um, you know, 8,000 or 9,000 years ago, where did these salts come from originally in those times? We had to try to, we wanted to understand um, in terms of where these salts could have come from 10,000 years ago. We wanted to look at natural and then potentially anthropogenic inputs. In terms of natural uh, inputs, we could think uh, initially is rainfall. Um, we have to make some assumptions about was rainfall similar today? Was it very different? Was temperature different? Um, trying to reconstruct climate. Uh, for that, we depended on previously published literature, and we felt confident in working with the assumption that climate was relatively similar, at least in that region of the world. Um, 10,000 years ago at the beginning of the Holocene as it is today. Mm -hmm. Um, so we 
we try to account for about 10,000 years worth of rainfall, which does carry salts. Um, so that would obviously be leaving some salts within the ar archaeological sediments themselves. Another potential, we'll call it natural, but obviously it has some anthropogenic component, is from the background sediments themselves. Uh, and the way that these manifest themselves in the mound is through ar the architecture. Um, mm. They were using you know, local sediments and uh, material to uh, make their bricks and use it in their mortar. And so this is a large portion of the mound is just pure architecture. So in the middens and in some of the other samples that we took, there's architectural debris. And so we try to account for, you know, the background sediments. This is actually where um, one of the more hardworking days, I would say, at the site was digging a two meter hole below the <laughs> below the site um, mm -hmm. into the natural sediments themselves to try to get a good representation of what the background salt levels would look like. Yeah. Um, You're just trying to um, remove the background, like the rain and architectural features so that you can get at the salt content of what should be from livestock and, and humans during the time. Exactly. Yep. Um, we when we saw these high, high values for these salts, um, these soluble salts, we really wanted to try to understand, you know, is this just something natural happening that we aren't thinking about? Um, and so we thought those were the two big, you know, places to look was rainfall, you know, try to just do a quick mass balance of in 10,000 years, how much salt could accumulate, mm -hmm. um, how much could come from the natural rock itself, um, in terms of the building material. And then, Things like wood ash, which is very prevalent at the site um, from burning of plant material, uh, that also has been known to contain um, a lot of salt. So, needless to say, a lot of my initial work in this was reading some very odd papers from, uh, you know, people who have measured salt in a variety of places, including you know experiments where they just threw wood in a furnace and you know <laughs> measured the salt content from the ash itself. So. But the, I think what was so stunning to us is that when we really, you know, did this very simple mass balance calculation and subtracted out these different components, there was a lot left over. Um, and when I say a lot, I mean that in some of our samples, we're looking at 10 to a thousand times more salt than the natural background. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, you know, this has to be coming from an anthropogenic source. We've tried to account for, you know, the major natural sources in the mound. I should, I should preface this with the reason we were able to, you know, kind of discern that this may have been, you know, from say animals or humans, uh, is that a lot of previous work had been done at this site looking at early animal management based on more classical methods, you know, identifying these dung deposits, counting bones of animals. Yeah, uh, a really great paper had come out in 2014 by our colleague Mary Steiner, which showed that the dependence on, in terms of food on caprines, so sheep and goats, really increased through the the occupation time of the mound. So over the thousand years, it went from you know 25 percent of bones to up to 90 percent. Mm. Um, so uh, the dependence increased. There's also the morphology of the bones, and um, again, I'm not anywhere near an expert on this, but you know, select the idea of you know if they were uh, culling the animals at a younger age, it, it would look, you know, it would give evidence for a type of management. Mm -hmm. We could work from this, this reference point of that there was likely animal management taking place. And so we thought, well, if they're keeping the animals on site, potentially, then these animals are going to urinate all over the place. 
and urine is very high in salt. And so we thought, how can we identify, you know, or give more evidence that these uh, extra salts were from urine. Mm -hmm. And so this is where um, I think not only, you know, looking at just basic element concentrations, but um, also moving over into the world of isotopes was very useful. Um, Again, going through a lot of uh, odd literature, (laughs) we, um, we were reading a lot about, you know, the process of uh, ammonia volatilization and, you know, uh, what we, one of the salts that we really cared about here was nitrate. Um, you had asked earlier about the salts that we wanted to look at. Mm-hmm. So things that we noticed were really high were sodium, chlorine, nitrate, um, magnesium, potassium, pretty much all the salts that you would think of. The reason we looked even at the, those salts in particular was because that mineral that uh, was found that I said that indicates very high salt values is um, mm-hmm. nitratine, which is a sodium nitrate, which really only forms in desert soils. Mm-hmm. Um, so we knew that sodium and nitrate were going to be high. And when we did this you know, simple mass balance uh, calculation to f- include all these natural components, we found that sodium, chlorine, and nitrate were the three that still had a really high abundance, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Things like wood ash are very high in calcium. So that's going to account for, say, a lot of the calcium that we noticed, um, mm-hmm. the sulfates, which was another um, ion that we cared about. Uh, that's, you know, pretty prevalent in rainfall. So that could account for a lot. Um, so those three sodium, chlorine, and nitrate were the ones that, uh, we used, uh, to, to do a lot of our calculations. We found that if you compared this, uh, a lot of these midden samples and these dung samples to, um, you know, different natural sources and anthropogenic sources, they look like a modern day pig farm right. or a cow farm. Um, so, and I, and that was kind of our big key indicator that, Hey, these salts, or at least some of them probably are coming from, from urine. Mm-hmm. I got to say, like, um, I think that I've had some guests on here talk about archeological, like poop, <laughs> <laughs> like talking about coprolites, but this is the first time I'm ever hearing of this method. And I think it's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we're hoping that I think that the end goal of this is to try to, you know, we're, we're writing a proposal now to expand this work and better constrain it. You know, something that I should make clear is that we had a lot of assumptions go into this, but, mm-hmm. um, we'd like to, in a way, enhance the use of geochemistry in, in, in archaeological studies by trying to consider not just, you know, a concentration of a sample here or an elemental comp, uh, concentration of a sample there, but try to approach um, these sites from a more from this mass balance overall, um, mm-hmm. like holistic approach um, and try to understand you know, what can we learn if we try to account for different inventories and inputs and, and um, uh, removal processes? You know, what new insight can be, uh, can be obtained through, through mm-hmm. uh, this type of approach? And so, yeah, I think that, you know, urine salts are an interesting way to go about it. And I think they, mm-hmm. you know, with some big error bars can, can tell us something or did tell us something about, you know, levels of, of animal management and, you know, timings of transition. And I think that's something that has eluded um, researchers in the past is just really this scale. Uh, but we'd like to eventually expand this work one to other sites and other time periods, you know, that want to focus on animal uh, management and animal, the development of animal domestication, but also to different elements um, that could tell us something maybe more about 
land use beyond the Neolithic revolution and and the start of early animal management. Mm -hmm. And I imagine like your earlier geological training and paleoclimatic training was um, that concentrates on how like the air or the land and, you know, the the water like interact with each other helped you to sort of see the bigger picture around this site. Yeah, um, I definitely think that you know, trying to understand how uh, we can take interdisciplinary approaches and how interactions between different systems. Um, I think that, uh, you know, keeping in that mindset definitely did help shape how this uh, process uh, or how we can use our methodologies to understand a process like this. I think it was very beneficial. Um, Mm -hmm. And something that I should point out is that uh, this actually, it's kind of a two way street there because this work, this has been one of my earliest projects started during my undergrad. It was very, you know, I think eye opening for me to see how, you know, archeologists, zoo archeologists, micromorphologists, and then, you know, some geochemists can all come together and provide a very, you know, coherent story. Um, I had mentioned all my other colleagues who were big in shaping this, including Mm -hmm. the archaeologists uh, in Turkey, who, you know, I think without them and providing um, a contextualization for all of the sampling we did, uh, I think it would have been impossible to come to anywhere, you know, to any of the conclusions that that, uh, were present in our work. Um, I think that was something that really shaped the way that I approached Mm -hmm. science. Um, I would describe myself as someone who lacks... um, depth. I think that's something I definitely need to improve before finishing my PhD is to find something that, you know, I really, you know, have a a strong Mm -hmm. focus on in a specific, you know, subfield. But I, I have loved in a sense, even though it might be considered a weakness that I have an interest in so many different things. But I think that one, you know, positive that that brings is that I can try to pull from different fields of science to try and attack problems, maybe from a, a very odd, what may seem as an odd, but could be beneficial viewpoint. Yeah. What's an example of research that's more in the geological realm that you have done recently? Yeah. So this work of like land, air, Mm -hmm. my most recent work uh, was focusing on a place in China. Uh, It's called the Hami Basin. It's part of the Western Gobi Desert. Mm. We think that this place could have been a a dust source in the past. Like I said, I care a lot about dust. And so, but today it's, you know, incredibly windy. Um, This place, uh, a city there uh, known as Hami, uh, it has a nickname in China of the devil city because of the howling winds that kind of run through the area. Um, Mm -hmm. Really windy. It's really hot. This place is, you know, sometimes reaches uh, in the top five to even the top spot on the hottest places on earth in a given year. Mm -hmm. And so he was saying that we, he's found that it's odd that this place, the geology points to it being a potential dust source in the past. Today, it's this very dark, gravelly, not very dusty, uh, region. And having done a little bit of past climate research myself, we could say that in the past, it probably had, uh, look kind of like what you'd think of as, you know, the modern day um, Taklamakan Desert in China. So this big, um, big basin there that's got sand and fine grain mm-hmm. deposits. Um, probably didn't have dunes like we think of in the Sahara or parts of the Taklamakan, but uh, lighter colored um, and stuff that was easily blown around by the wind. And through time, this place changed um, and wind, we think, is what eroded away these, these like fine grain um, clay to silty 
uh, material. And what it left behind were these big, dark colored uh, gravels. And so mm-hmm. uh, you could kind of think of this process as if, if someone's familiar with, say, Death Valley or the Death Valley region, where you have these high mountains and they're producing sediment that falls to the, the basin floor. And then over time, this wind is eroding away these sediments. And so what was, I think, unique about the way we approached this is that no one had really thought before this about the um, wind erosion potentially feeding back on itself. And that's kind of important because it tells us that when we try to understand climate of the past mm-hmm. um, in terms of dust, it can play a role in um, the the radiative properties of the planet. So mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, in the case of you know how much sun uh, incoming solar radiation from the sun is reflected, um, how much is trapped in the atmosphere. Um, that's actually one of the biggest uncertainties that current climate models have when we're trying to understand modern. Uh, global warming is what role do aerosols mm-hmm. play? Uh, it also can be pretty important for the oceans because it provides iron to the oceans, and iron can be really important in uh, stimulating growth of, say, algae or phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. So, dust is this important thing. And when we try to understand what role dust can play in the climate system, we want to understand where dust comes from. That makes sense. Like, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. And also, really nice to hear about um, how you know, we can apply these geochemical methods to the study of something like archaeology, but also I think like there are applications and implications for modern day climate change. It's just, um, yeah, really good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the goal, right? Like you, you know, with everything that, uh, humanity struggling with in terms of, of climate change. Now it's, you know, it's important sometimes I think to make sure, you know, we don't want to couch everything in the, the idea of how, how does it impact, you know, what role can it play in global warming or what, you know, how does it play in modern climate? But I think that if we can think of some implications, some, uh, you know, a process might have, mm-hmm. um, it's always good to, to be able to include it or to try to, um, you know, add it as a, as a potential implication. For sure. Uh, I am thinking of closing the show soon. So I'm just going to bounce around a few quick questions. In the earliest days of your career and your education, like you were an engineer and then you switched to geology. Do you, do you ever uh, look back at that and regret it? Or do you think that was a good decision? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm very certain now that this was the, the right decision to make. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to lie. It wasn't necessarily a um, 100% my decision. Uh, definitely had to do partially with um, figuring out life as a young adult in a college setting far away from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, uh, initially taking some of these um, very rigorous in terms of mathematics uh, and physics classes as an, as an early engineering student um, or engineering classes themselves. Uh, definitely kind of gave me the, or hinted to me that, you know, maybe that wasn't right for me. Um, but I but think Jordan, that, uh, I, I've seen some of your papers that there's uh, quite a lot of heavy math <laughs> and uh, equations in there too. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So maybe it all, it, it all came full circle anyway, but I think, I think you make a good observation that maybe then it is really the context in terms of, you know, how you're learning the mathematics or how you're learning the physics mm-hmm. or chemistry, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, 
you know, that really does play a role in, in how you grasp information. Um, I think that was the funniest conversation I may have had with my graduate advisor was as I entered grad school, you know, and, and I even joke, we even joke about it to this day, four years later, I got a C and a D in my first two chemistry courses. Oh no. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, here I am sitting as a geochemist. So I think that, you know, if it's, if it's helpful for any, you know, early career listeners, um, who may be still, struggling with, you know, undergraduate work or early graduate work, you know, I think you can just, it's just how, you know, maybe it is just how you uh, grasp the information and and the way that it's provided to you, you know, that really sparks an interest that can make the big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so I think I made the right choice definitely in the end. Um, And I think that earth science has really provided me, you know, I said, I should say this earth science and its connection to, to archeology span has really provided me with a, with um, the opportunity to, to really branch out, to explore so many different fields, um, which is what keeps my interest, I think, um, going in, in all the work that I do and in academia. Uh, so yeah, I think I, I, I shouldn't say, I think I know I made the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I'm, I'm excited to, you know, see where all these different, uh, crossroads of different fields takes me uh, in the future and how we can explore different topics. Um, by combining methodologies from, from different fields and, and, and just, you know, allowing viewpoints that say I might take in working with colleagues in archeology span and how that might provide a new way of looking at things in, in say, you know, past climate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, what would you say would be like some of the major, maybe like, you know, troubles or like stresses that you encounter in your day-to-day work and what are you doing to sort of face them or what do you do in your spare time to de-stress? Yeah. So, um, in terms of challenges, I think mine are probably similar to, to a lot of people who go through grad school. It's just, you know, trying to bounce around, you know, five different things going on at once. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that might be the one negative that comes of trying to do, you know, archeology span with past climate and, 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 you know, this geochemistry work that I do, um, is, you know, I have a problem saying no to people. Um, so if a, if a fun project pops up, I'm usually always, um, interested and, and willing to, to continue, but, mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely something that I'm learning, you know, uh, even now is, is how to, you know, try to really time manage. Well, um, uh, I would say that another struggle that's really has, has been interesting to deal with is, you know, the, the, um, the politics that come into play with say field work, um, you know, doing field work in Turkey has sometimes been very easy. Uh, for the year that I went, it was very easy, very smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, the year before that was 2016, which, um, there was uh, a lot of things politically going on in Turkey, um, trying to get permits to do field work. You know, you sometimes think that science should be this, you know, uh, in terms of at least field work in my eyes should be something that should be very easy to do and shouldn't be, um, held back by, you know, uh, you know, things like politics, but you forget that there's a lot going on in the world and there's more than just your scientific endeavor. And you need to really consider that and take a step back. So while sometimes field work gets held up, which may seem like a big disappointment or challenge at the time, I think that having been able to go through that has provided me with the ability to problem solve a bit, move on to a different project or put things on hold or, mm-hmm. and the like. In terms of, of challenges, I've been pretty fortunate um, with the way my grad school has gone. 
and, and, and undergrad, I've been, I've had incredible mentors who have all really been willing to really take me under their wing and, mm-hmm. and move forward. If anyone wants to ask you any questions about this interview, or they just sort of want to follow your future work, can people find you online if they have any questions? <laughs> yes. Um, so I have a website, uh, it's jtable.com. Uh, I also am on Twitter at, uh, forget actually what it's called handle is that the right yeah it's handle <laughs> uh, uh, yeah so that's uh ring a bell so ring and then my last name uh 09 um so yeah i'm not I, i'm somewhat active on twitter um i try to keep my website pretty updated we also have a lab website mm-hmm. for our work if you look up wings lab at lamont darty earth observatory that's a lot of good work that's coming out of our lab at, at, at columbia and lamont so any of those places yeah if if someone wants to follow along that would be That'd be really great to check those out. Excellent. And for every episode, I like to ask the guest if they have a hashtag that they can come up with so that listeners can use it to indicate that they've heard all the way through. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is too long. Maybe hashtag the key is in the P. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and um good summary of what we've talked about. (laughs) Cool. I like that one. Uh, Listeners, if you like this episode, then let Jordan and me know on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Reddit at ArcananthPod using the hashtag, the keys in the P. (laughs) Thank you so much to the patrons who keep the show going. If you also want to become a patron and you've been listening for a while and want to support us, then go to patreon.com slash ArcananthPod to find out how you can support this public archaeology and anthropology program. New episodes come out every month. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on arcananth.com or iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, anywhere else you find podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I know it's a difficult time for many people, but I hope that these episodes are helping you through it. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for your help today with this episode. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Listeners, thank you so much for hearing this episode. I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.